We have four children, anywhere from six to seven months old. And so it's a lot of fun in our house. That being said, we don't get out much. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't get out much. We, we have to keep things contained. So we, we have to kind of know what we're getting into when we, when we go out. So Chick-fil-A and the park are about the extent of our travelings. And so this past week, it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It was kind of a cold day. So we said, okay, let's, let's load up the crew. Let's go to Sky Zone, right? Because that'll be a lot of fun. Well, I guess everyone else in Georgia had the same idea because we show up and there's not even a parking spot in the parking lot. So we say, okay, plan B, we're going to go up to Mayfield Dairy. We're going to get some ice cream. It's so cold. Who cares? Let's go for the ice cream. On the way up there, I get this phone call and it's from my friend Jorge. And he and his wife have three small children as well that are five, two, and not yet one, I think, or maybe just turn one, something like that. So we have seven kids that are six and under. And they say, hey, y'all want to come over for dinner? I'm thinking, oh, okay. How's this going to work out? We're going to come over for dinner. So uh, dinner, we use that uh, term loosely, dinner, okay? So, so anyway, so okay, on the way back, we're going to swing by your all's house. We're going to have dinner together. And as we are, are getting ready to eat the meal, we all kind of walk into this meal knowing a couple things. A, we're not going to get to eat all of our food at once. B, somebody's probably going to get hurt, and something's probably going to get broken. That's probably what's going to happen around this meal. That's what meals look like for us. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but stop and think about the maturity of each of the children. You've got, you've got Maggie Grace that's seven months old that, you know, she doesn't even like to eat food yet. You know, we try to give her food now. She prefers the milk. That's okay. So Maggie Grace is kind of there. She's starting to crawl around a little bit. So it's, it's a lot of fun until her brother Roman opens doors that she goes through and we can't find her. That's happened before. Then you've got, you've got Mariah. Mariah is, you know, just a little older than Maggie Grace. And Mariah is, she's walking. She's kind of into things going about a little bit. She loves to eat food, loves uh, to eat food way more than Maggie. And then, you know, just a stair step above that, you've got Roman. And some of you have met Roman before, and I don't really need to say anything more than his name. And Roman is into everything. He doesn't talk very much at all. But he's into everything. He can understand everything, but he chooses not to talk. For that, uh, I have no uh, idea why. But one instance we saw Roman uh, recently, not at the Viejos, but uh, another instance, he, he come, climbed up on the counter, got a steak knife, and was walking into our bedroom with a steak knife, <laughs> just looking at my wife. And she's like, okay, stop right there. Give me the knife. You know, she's kind of walking at him like that. Uh, and then just a little bit above that, we've got Georgia. And Georgia, Georgia, I remember this night, she, we were eating some, some kind of a Mexican goodness, and there were some tortilla chips there. And she drops a tortilla chip on the kitchen floor. It shatters. She begins bawling her eyes out because that tortilla chip is gone. And so she really wants that chip back. And then just above that, we've got Caden. And Caden is just the life of the party. He loves to hang out and to have fun. He feeds himself, uses the bathroom himself, and has clothes on most of the time. So that's good. And then just above that, we've got Nehemiah, who just turned five. And Nehemiah, just the sweetest kid in the world. He's, he's playing, he's independently playing in the, in the, in the living room and, and having a good old time. And then we've got Tatum, our, our six-year-old, who actually likes to feed the baby in our house. And the baby actually eats, Roman, the, our, we have two babies because they're so young, but Roman actually eats better from his sister Tatum than he does from us. So you see all these different spectrums of maturity. Now, I'm not going to get into the adults because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but you see this spectrum of maturity. And as I think about them, there are times when I want them to mature in certain areas faster 
then they're maturing. And you're like, man, could you just stop, you know, saying what you're thinking all the time? Can you just stop doing that? That's really embarrassing me when we're in public places. Can you just stop using the bathroom all over yourself? I mean, that would be awesome if you could do that. But God has so designed them where they mature at his pace, not my pace. And are they going to get where they're going? Absolutely. Are they going to get there in a different pace than I think? Yes, most likely. And, and the funny thing is, is a lot of the times I want to change them from the outside in. I want to begin to manipulate and change them and make them more mature than they actually are. And you know, my wife, Megan, used to be a, a developmental therapist when we lived in Indiana, and she would work with children that had developmental uh, issues that, that had come up, and she would go into their house and help them with speaking and different things like that, and motor skills and, and stuff like that. And I, and I think, you know, I, I, none of our kids are in need of that at this point, but if they are, we would certainly seek that help. And as I parallel this to our spiritual lives, I can't help but think about the fact that every single one of you in this room are in a different place. You're in a different place spiritually. The gospel is coming to bear fruit in your life differently than it is in mine and the person sitting next to you. And God has planned it that way. But there are times in our life when there are spiritual disabilities that we have, right? And we've got to repent of those things and we've got to seek the Lord. There, there are malfunctions in our spirituality at times when we refuse to do what God has called us to do or we let sin linger in our hearts a little too long. And I think this is what Colossians chapter one is talking about. That the gospel is made to come upon us and to constantly bear fruit and grow. And I don't know about you, but we've got several rolls of duct tape around my house. And if something's broken, a lot of times I'll just throw a little duct tape on it, right? Does the duct tape fix the issue? No, it never does. It just covers it up and kind of helps you get by. Well, I think what God wants to do in us as a church is to take off the duct tape and to really fix the issues behind our broken spiritual maturity. And I think God, I think, I think God shows us through the life of Nehemiah what, what a redeemed spiritual growth actually looks like. It's this inside-out progression. You know, I don't know about you, but I forget the gospel often. I forget what Jesus has done often. I mean, I might forget what Jesus has done five, six, 30 times in a day. I forget the gospel and there's a reason that God calls us to remind one another of the good news because we're prone to forget it. We're prone to go back to our default mode where we forget what God has done and forget who we are in light of what God has done. A few years ago, I was sharing life with my friend Monty, and he shared this, shared this diagram with me of what spiritual maturity, spiritual growth actually looks like in the scriptures. And Basically, it's called the gospel waltz. And Megan, Megan has had me do ballroom dancing lessons with her before. Anybody else done some ballroom dancing lessons? Yeah, okay, so I'm the only one. I told her I was the only one. Uh, so, you know, what I noticed about ballroom dancing was this, especially with this dance called the waltz, is it was like, it sounded so ridiculously simple. When the instructor's like, hey, you know, here's how waltzing works. It's three steps. It's three steps. It's one, two, three, one, two, three, over and over and over again. But when we're dancing there at this dance studio in Indiana, I'm stepping on our feet. They've got to put tape on the floor to show me where to step. I mean, I'm so uncoordinated. So we did that for a few weeks, and I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of done with that. I, you know, it's not that cool. No one else is doing it. And I really just, I, I couldn't dance. 
You know, I just was incapable of dancing. But this gospel, this waltz is just three steps. Seems so simple, but when you change the tempo and the, you know, all that kind of stuff, it just makes it a lot more complex. And so I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, just stepping like this, trying to, you know, I can't even look at my wife that I'm dancing with because I'm just trying so hard to, to take the steps. And I think when we first become Christians, that's what it's like to live the Christian life, to gospel waltz. But as we walk with Jesus, he matures us to the point that when we forget the gospel, like I might repent, I might repent 30 times in a day without even knowing it, you know, without even being conscious of it, because I know I've got to get back to Jesus to have joy in my life. And so the gospel waltz kind of goes like this. It's three steps, okay? This, and I, and I, would, this, I would say that this is, this is what it looks like in the scriptures to, to walk as a Christian. It looks like this, and you can enter into the dance at any, any step. The first step is repentance. The second step is faith. The third step is obedience. So repentance, faith, obedience. Repentance, faith, obedience. And it's interesting that Martin Luther, who was kind of the, the guy that got the whole Protestant Reformation going, he, he nailed these 95 theses on the, the door of the church of Wittenberg. And the, the first one, the first theses of all the 95 things that he said was that all of life is a life of repentance. And if, if you're like me, I kind of grew up when I, when I got around the church thinking that repentance is a bad thing. That I shouldn't have to repent because that means that I've done something wrong. But here there's this dilemma going on inside of me because I couldn't help but have to repent because I was always finding myself doing stuff wrong. In the scriptures, we don't see that repentance is a bad thing. We see that it's what God has intended for us. So here's the deal, though. Like, I can put this on the screen, repentance, faith, obedience. You can take this home and be like, all right, I got this. I know how to live as a Christian now. Let's go for it. Here's the problem, guys. We like to do a little thing that I call the Texas two-step a little too often. Okay, so here's what we do. We take one of these things out of our life, and we begin to try to live as a Christian. So here's what it might look like. So let's say you take repentance out of the picture. So you're going from faith to obedience, faith to obedience. What happens is you become moralistic. There's no focus on the fact that you're a sinner and you need God's grace. And so you're just focused on your performance. Let's say that we take faith out of the picture. So you're going straight from repentance to obedience. Well, you become legalistic because you're only concerned about the things that you think that you can do. And so you're always trying to look better on the outside. And let's say we take obedience out of the picture, that we're just going from repentance to faith, repentance to faith. Well, then we, we just completely ignore the parts of the Bible where God calls us to obey his word. And so I think this is what is going on in Nehemiah chapter 1, moving into Nehemiah 2. So I wanted to lay this grid out there for you as we get into Nehemiah chapter 2. And, and I want you to remember a, a few things as we get into this. I want to give you a picture of where we're going. That way you kind of know where we are headed this morning. Kind of three points we're going to break Nehemiah 2 into. The first one is this, be. Be who you are, where you are. Be. The second one, participate. Live in the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. There's a participation that God invites us to come into as we are ambassadors of the king. And the third one is this, gaze. Gaze upon the work of Christ and do it often. So let's get into Nehemiah chapter two together. Instead of reading it all at once and then reading it again, I'm just gonna read it a section at a time this morning. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter two, 
verses 1 through 9. Scriptures say this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And get this right here. And the king granted me what I ask for the good hand of my God was upon me. I would say that's the, that's the key verse of that portion that we just looked at, that the good hand of my God was upon me. You see, in, in Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah did all this inside work of, of seeking the Lord, repenting of his sin, and then going before the king. I mean, so what was going on in, in Nehemiah 2 here? Well, there's likely that there's this festival going on, okay? And this is the, the king of Persia who had who defeated the Babylonians. I mean, the, the, the strongest kingdom in the world. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. What's the cupbearer? The cupbearer is kind of the, the intercessor for the king. I mean, if someone's going to poison the king, you know, by in his food or in his wine, Nehemiah is going to take the hit. He's going to take the fall for the king. And so Nehemiah and the king, they're tight. I mean, they're like this. I mean, they're close. So there's a festival likely going on. So Nehemiah would have, would have expected to represent the king. Now, as a king, you never want your servant to look sad when there's a festival going on because he's representing that there's something going on in the kingdom that's not good. And so Nehemiah would have been tempted to kind of church it up. You know what I'm saying? To kind of put on a face, to put on a front that everything was okay, but he was so burdened by what had happened to his people, what had happened to the city, the promised land that they were given as Israelites, that he couldn't do it. And the crazy thing is, is he didn't even feel like he had to. God put this burden on his heart, and so he begins to talk with the king. And did you notice that in the middle of his conversation, he catches himself praying, and he prays, and he goes to God, and he doesn't change what God's put on his heart, but he goes and confidence and faith that God was doing a good work and that what God had called him to, that God would actually do. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life whenever, whenever things are not going well that I, that I just want to crawl up in a hole and I want to hide. I don't want to, I don't want to pursue, uh, I don't want to pursue God. I don't want to, I don't want to seek his face because I'm saddened at heart. And so I'm tempted to just kind of put on a face, to put on a front, to put on a mask. To wear a mask around where, where, where it projects this version of a future, better version of me. 
to all the people that are around me so that I can act like everything's okay. And and I've noticed that when people ask you, hey, how you doing? If you actually tell them how you're doing, they're kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to ask them that anymore. Have you ever noticed that before? (laughs) They're like, ah, Try it next time. Someone asks you how you're doing. Oh, it's Monday. How do you think I'm doing? You know? I mean, just, just, just try that out. But, but when we really address the fact that things in our lives are not the way that we want them to be, we're being honest. And we see that Nehemiah is being honest in this place right here. And it could have cost him his job. Maybe it could have cost him his life. But the burden that God had put on him and the confidence, the faith that he had in what God had called him to do, coming from this place of repentance, he was unwilling to budge. He wasn't, he wasn't willing to fake it. God doesn't love some future, better version of you, church. He loves you right now, right where you are. There are things in your life that you want to change, that you want to be different. God doesn't love that version of you. He loves the version of you that is right before you, the the honest version of you exactly where you're at. And we see Nehemiah being very confident about that fact. But God is meeting him right where he's at, and God is doing a good work through him. And as I read, what do you guys see what Nehemiah is doing here? He's, he's not only going before the king and saying, hey, I'm going to take uh, you know, a few years off. Actually, I'm never going to come back. You know? He not only comes and says that, he's like, hey, uh, so uh, you know, Jerusalem, you think about paying for it. You, you think about how ridiculous this request is. This pagan king, he, Nehemiah asked him to pay for, to, to send people, to send resources to, to build this, this kingdom back, to build the walls back, and then he pays for it. I'm, I'm reminded of, of Proverbs 21.1. If you ever doubt the power of God, listen to this passage right now and then kind of lay it over Nehemiah uh, chapter 2 here. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is so powerful. Whatever it is in your life right now that you want to run from, the brokenness that is around you, God is so powerful and so, so much in control over that. If you could just rest in that fact right now, God would grant a lot of joy. God is so powerful that he takes the most powerful king, pagan king in the world, and he rebuilds his city with his resources. And not only that, it's like that they're... They're cooperating. It's like God has turned his heart. He's softened King Artaxerxes' heart, and he's, he's softened him to the point where, where God's will and King Artaxerxes' will, at least right here, are overlapping. And God is using this pagan king to rebuild his kingdom. Church, we've got to be people that are willing to do the hard work of just being where we are, of, of looking inside of ourselves. There's been something that I've been convinced of in the last year, and, and it's this. It's that a lot of times when you think about church planting, you, you, you think about all the work that you've got to do. But I'm learning to think about the fact, all the work that God wants to do inside of me before anything ever comes out of me. And I want to challenge you this year to maybe think about the same thing. Think about the fact that God is more interested in building your inner life of faith than the ministry that you will ever do for him. And what would it look like for you to seek the face of the Lord and then trust him with whatever he wants to do with your life? One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, said it like this. The further the outward journey, he's talking about obedience here, the further the outward journey takes you, the deeper the inward journey must be. So Nehemiah is drinking from these deep streams of the Lord. He's even praying in the middle of a conversation to the king. And he's, he's obeying the Lord because his heart and, and God's heart are one. And so this, this obedient good work comes from the inside out. It's God's work. 
And, and what's a good work? That's a, that's a great question. Good works are things that line up with God's will, right? So Nehemiah does this good work. Would, have been a, would it have been a good work if Nehemiah didn't have a heart of faith when he was doing it? No, it wouldn't have been. But it's a good work because of the work that God had been doing in Nehemiah's heart and what he does for the kingdom of God in light of that. So let's, let's, let's continue on in Nehemiah. The second thing is this. God invites us to participate, to live in the tension of God's sovereignty and of our responsibility. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. This is where things really start getting real here. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. So Nehemiah's on his journey, and I gave them the, the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of his army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So we see Nehemiah begin to get his hands dirty. He's going through the different regions. There were governors of these different regions that the Babylonians and then the Persians had conquered. And so these guys were kind of looking over the different areas. And as we said last week, Susa, where Nehemiah and Artaxerxes were, was about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. So they've got an 800 mile trip by plane uh, to get there. So it won't take too long. No, they've got an 800 mile trip by foot and maybe horse, and it's going to take a long time to get there, right? So they're going through these different areas and they, they come across Sambalot and they come across Tobiah, and these guys are not happy with what's going on. And we'll see in a few minutes that they actually accuse Nehemiah of rebelling against the king, but Nehemiah was thinking ahead. God is God making a plan before. He's got these letters with the king's signature on it, his seal, saying, hey, give him all the wood he needs. <laughs> give him everything and let him pass through. Don't try to capture him or his people. He's going to do this work. And we see that opposition in Nehemiah's case right here is a gift. You're like, opposition is a gift. Opposition is a gift. You know why? Because it solidifies and reassures the fact that Nehemiah is called to do what he's about to go do. Notice how he talks about the confidence that he has and how they notice that the, the good hand of the king, of the good hand of God is upon them and the favor of the king is with them. I don't know how you see uh, opposition in your life, but I'm tempted to run from opposition because it's uncomfortable. 
I can remember a time when we were in Indianapolis and we were praying about planting a church and going to move to Atlanta, Georgia, and I told my student ministry team of about 30 adults about what we were planning to do, and this lady comes up to me about a, uh, probably about a week later, and she goes, you know, I got this vision from God, and I just really think that this is a really bad thing for your family. And this, is a, this was not like a, a lady that was out there. This is one of our good friends. We're like, oh, what's going on here? And so we began to pray about it. We took it before the Lord and, and God just confirmed all the more. And even in that opposition, even in those words that he was calling us to this, but it does make us consider what we're about to do, doesn't it? When opposition arises. So we don't just, we don't just throw it off to the side. We consider it and then we keep moving forward if it's the will of God. And so that's what we see that opposition. It, it's a gift. It solidifies God's call. So, so what was Nehemiah doing around the, the city walls. Well, I've got a, a, a small map here. I'll kind of show you where he was going to and fro. So he kind of goes out the valley gate. This is kind of the south end of the city here. And he goes around and he's, he's, he's kind of going through the Hinnom Valley there. And he comes across to the, the Dung Gate. Is that, that a place where you guys would want to live? <laughs> it's interesting because as you're looking at the city of Jerusalem, this is actually, the elevation is at its lowest point near the Dung Gate. And what I realized when I was there, when our guide was talking, is this is where we get the phrase upper class and lower class. So the lower class people, do you think the wealthy people live near the Dungate or the poor people? The poor people live near the Dungate, right? It didn't smell good. Everything kind of ran downhill. So, I mean, that's where they live, close to the Dungate. So Nehemiah's kind of going out and, and checking out this area and looking at the walls. And, and the walls are so utterly broken. It says that he can't even, the animal that he's riding can't even get uh, to where he wants to go. So he, he kind of checks out what he can and, and realizes that, hey, look, everything's broken. Everything's pretty jacked up here. And the, the interesting thing about this is because Nehemiah probably assumed what he would find, but when he goes and sees it with his own eyes, it's probably a little worse than he ever imagined. And, and when you think about brokenness, I mean, broken down walls in the book of Nehemiah, the brokenness of sin impacting our lives. It's a similar kind of feeling probably. Nehemiah is willing to enter into the brokenness. He's, he's willing to enter into to seeing what God is going to have to do instead of running from the brokenness. When brokenness surrounds your life, are you tempted to run from it or are you tempted to engage with the heart of faith? This week I was getting gas at Kroger so I could use my fuel points and get it a little cheaper. And I'm out pumping gas. It's like, I don't know, it feels like it's 10 degrees on Friday, right? And it's just really cold. And there's this lady pumping gas next to me. And so we, we get into a conversation. I don't know why we pick, you know, the day where it feels like it's 10 degrees and we're pumping gas to get into a conversation. But we strike up a conversation. And, and she begins to tell me really a lot about her life. I was just so, so surprised that she was so open. And she was telling me that she works in this area and lives like, like an hour away in Milton. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's cool. So how long have you been doing that? And she's like, well, for like 15 years. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm just thinking about the commute alone, you know, and it's, that's a treacherous commute, right? From, from Lawrenceville to Milton. I mean, it's just, there's no main thoroughfare. It's just a treacherous commute. And I began to ask her, I said, so why don't you live in Lawrenceville? Why do you, what, if, if this is the job that you want and you're keeping it, why don't you live in Lawrenceville? And she goes, oh, Gwinnett County Schools, I'm not about to put my daughter in those schools. And what I heard her say as a, as a proud Lawrencevillian was, my daughter's too good for your city. And I, I, I didn't look at her with a heart of sin. I just, I just was observing what God 
was doing, and I began to think about our journey to Lawrenceville and how many people told us that we shouldn't plant the church in Lawrenceville. I remember hearing, having a conversation with a lady that we were, you know, seeking to see if she wanted to be a part of our launch team and, and, and her hearing our heart for mercy and justice in Lawrenceville and, and her asking, how are we going to pay the bills? And I said, I don't know, I guess God will figure it out. Guys, we're in Lawrenceville on purpose. We meet at Richards Middle School on purpose because this has been a place that has been exiled by many people. They don't see that this place is valuable anymore. And when Megan and I came here, we just began to see that God has a a huge vision for this place, that he is rebuilding what has been broken. And we begin to have this assumption that God is at work all around us, that we're not bringing anything new to Lawrenceville. We're not bringing anything new to our neighborhood. We're just trying to partner with the good work that God already wants to do here and what he's already doing. And New City Church is here for the same reason. We wanna be in the Discovery High School cluster on purpose, because we think that God wants to redeem this place. And we think that he wants to use people like me and like you, though though I'm nothing special, just a willing, obedient heart that's willing to say, hey, this place matters and we're not going to run away from it. What would that look like? Some of you have a real clear vision of what that looks like. Others of you not. But I'm just convinced that God's not through with Lawrenceville. God's not through with Gwinnett County, that he's doing a great work here, that he's bringing the world here. And the gospel is going forth from here. It's constantly bearing fruit and growing. And and we don't want to run away from this brokenness. We want to engage in it with a heart of faith, knowing that only God can can restore the broken down walls that are are all around us. We 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 shouldn't have to fear the appearance of brokenness. You think about this idea of participating in God's good work and living in this tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's like God is control. He's in control over everything. It's him that's doing the work, but also he calls us to obey. He calls us to participate. So you think about it, even in the story of, of Nehemiah, the things that were going on. I mean, God is sovereign over the, the Israelites' exile. I mean, the fact that they're in, you know, Medo-Persia, the, the fact that Nehemiah is a cupbearer, the, the fact that, that God draws Nehemiah to himself, the fact that God is working in King Artaxerxes' heart, this pagan king. And you think about the responsibility of obedience that had to happen, that Nehemiah had to repent. That's the condition of our faith, right? I mean, we've got to repent. We've got to, we've got to see our need for salvation. Nehemiah had to repent. I mean, I can guarantee these walls weren't going up if Nehemiah's not repenting. It's not happening. Maybe God uses someone else. I don't know. Nehemiah had to go to the king with the heart of faith and make this ridiculous ask. Hey, I want you to pay for the rebuilding of my city. How's that sound? Is that good? Good deal? I'll be faithful to you. I'll be a governor there. But you're going to, how about you pay for it? Oh, and can you build me a house too? That'd be great. So, so, so Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He has to make that trip to Jerusalem. He has to go by Sambalot. He has to go by Tobiah. These guys that are in, I forget where they're at, but he has to go through, he has to go through the, the place that they're governing and, and meet that opposition. He knows he's going to meet it. He has to do all these things. He has to make this plan, and we see him beginning to observe and to make this plan now. I'm honored by the fact that Nehemiah was willing <laughs> to engage in the brokenness. And I'm honored by the fact that you are willing to engage in the brokenness. I'm honored by the fact that some of you once had a heart of like, I don't really care about Lawrenceville. I just found a cheap house here. But now you want to engage and and participate with God's good work here. I'm honored that some of you want to buy houses in Lawrenceville. I'm honored that some of you want to rearrange your life 
to see the gospel go forth in Lawrenceville. I'm honored by all of those things because I think it pleases God's heart and I think it is the work that God wants to do, that he's not done with this place and that he's gonna continue to work through those that will hear his voice. So thirdly, let's look at this. Let's look at the last two verses of Nehemiah 2 and then we'll, then we'll land this plane here. Nehemiah 2, 19. But when Sambalot the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, I love this right here. Don't miss this. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Not your approval. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you can have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You've got no jurisdiction in Jerusalem, boys. How's that? You got no jurisdiction. The enemy, friends, has no jurisdiction in your heart. He has no power there. He wants to bring up these offenses. He's the accuser himself, and he wants to, he wants to have you forget the gospel and live out of legalism, moralism, of licentiousness. But, but the truth is, is that he has no jurisdiction there. That the king, it's, it's his, King Jesus, it's his jurisdiction in the heart of the believer. God will make us prosper. It's God that will make us prosper. You know, this idea of sanctification that Brandon preached about a, a few weeks ago is this idea that, that not only are we saved, are we justified, but we are also being saved as we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ and the call that he's put upon our life. You know what I'm beginning to real, realize about this idea of being sanctified? You know, I mean, you can read, we could pick up lots of books that teach us how to be more sanctified, right? 10 steps to this, Nine steps to this, three steps to a better life, this and that, and how to have a better quiet time and how to, how to do all of these things. And what I realize is that really what I think God is calling us to do as a people is to gaze back upon the work that he's done first in us. As Jonathan Edwards says, to be smitten by the beauty of God, to be absolutely smited by how beautiful God is in his redemption and saving us, to look at the beauty of God and be taken back by it. And to live out of that posture. But for some reason, we're so tempted to get to work. Instead of seeking, gazing upon the work of Jesus. And, and here in Nehemiah 2, I love what Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. It's God that will make us prosper. It's God that will rebuild the wall. It's God that will work in our hearts. It's God that will make us obedient as we seek his face. It's God. I want to read this quote by Richard Lovelace. He says this, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. So seeing Christ is beautiful. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need of justification to be made right with God. Below the surface, however, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Is that you? Are you deeply guilt-ridden and insecure in everything that you do? You're always wondering if you're doing the right thing, if you're hearing from God, or what other people are going to think of you. He goes on to say, many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. You know the right answer. But in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. So you rely on all the things that you can do for God to make you feel secure in God. We've got them backwards. 
And he goes on to say this, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity. Their recent religious performance or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon this, what Martin Luther said. You are accepted looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. So what's he saying? So we've got to look back at what the work of Christ did in us. We got to continue to look back. We got to continue to look at the gospel. The gospel is the power for us to be sanctified. The gospel is not the thing that just gets you into heaven and then it's up to you. He's like, hey, get to work, guys. That's not how it works. The gospel is constantly bearing fruit and growing. It's God's grace that makes Nehemiah prosper. It's God's grace that makes us prosper. It's God's grace that's going to make Lawrenceville prosper. We've got to build the inner life church. We've got to look at what God is doing in and through us. We've got to look at the beauty of Jesus. We've got to be smitten by that beauty. I love the story of the Apostle Paul. I'm not going to go there today, but it's in Acts chapter 9-ish, where Apostle Paul is like the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And there's this instance, I think it's in Acts 6 or 7, where we first see the Apostle Paul, and it says that he was holding the jackets of those guys that were stoning Stephen, okay? So that's his participation there, okay? And what happens in Acts 9? He's on this road to Damascus. God, he meets God. God blinds him. God blinds him. And then he goes, he's blind for several days, and then God uses this guy named Ananias, brings back his sight. Paul is then a born-again believer of Christ. Paul had to be blinded so that he could teach others how to spiritually see. He had to, he had to endure that so that he could be used of God. He had, to, he had to endure the hardship. He had to see who he really was so that God could use him to build his church. God is using all of these things in our life, church. We, we don't have to run away from the brokenness because the, the work of God is an inside-out work. That's the, that's the trajectory of God's grace. And my question for you today as we conclude is this, is God is inviting you to dance for the rest of your life. He's inviting you to waltz with him. Are you going to mess it up? Are you going to step on his toes? Yeah, you're going to be way worse than me when I was dancing with my wife. We're going to mess it up. We've got to continue to dance with God. We've got to continue to repent, to ask for the gift of faith and to obey him. And when we find that we're not obeying, instead of looking at ourselves to fix the issue, we've got to go back to God. We've got to repent. We've got to seek his face once again. And that's what it means to walk in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are more beautiful than we could ever recognize, and yet you are so gracious to us when, even when we don't see it. Whenever we think that we're the ones that are sanctifying ourselves, it's all your work of grace. And I, I just thank you that you're patient with us. You are long-suffering with us as, as kids that are in all different spheres of our spiritual maturity. Father, would you meet us where we are? Would you give us the courage to be where we are, not to try to be in some future better version of our sanctification, but to be exactly where we are right, right now today and to seek your face because we are well-pleasing to you. All of your kids are well-pleasing to you, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are in Jesus Christ. 
Father, let that cause us to pause and to stop and to think upon you. It's in Jesus' name.